Hello, and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. This voice in your ear is Jensen Beeler from Asphalt and Rubber and the Tune Enthusiast podcast. And with me today on the Isle of Man are Tony Goldsmith and Steve English. Hello, Jensen. Hi, Jensen. Boys, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you, you, you two have had a busy, busy couple of weeks uh, on the Isle of Man. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit what you've been up to? Uh, well, to be honest, the last few days I've mostly been making sure that Steve wasn't dying because I think two weeks at the TT has has gotten a little bit too much for Steve and his delicate constitution. Uh, but apart from that, we've been basking in the sunshine and, and was watching some motorbike racing, which has been both uh, amazing and the usual mix of emotions at the TT. Uh, it's been amazing, amazing highs of incredible speeds. But we've also had the lows as well of um, four riders losing their lives at the TT. So when that happens, you always finish with that, that mixture of emotion of as I say, the the highs and the lows, and it and it can it can get you, but um, but we're we're here now, and it's it, and it's finished, and uh, look, we're we're here to look back on uh, what was an amazing TT uh, with some incredible speeds and jaw dropping stuff to be there and witness it. Uh, I don't know about how you feel, Steve. Yeah, I think this was probably one of the most interesting TTs that I can remember over you know, 25 years of watching the TT. And Tony, you've obviously been watching for a little bit longer than me. But when you look at the speeds, when you look at the weather we've had, when you look at just the fights between Dunlop and Hutchie for the wins, and then, as you said, the lows, obviously it's an unfortunate side of road racing, but it is also what makes road racing so special. When you come to the TT and you witness the speeds, when you drive around the roads here, it makes you respect everyone even more so than what you would do when you watch on telly. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the bravery from everybody on that grid um, is something to see. Uh, obviously, every time they leave the line, we we hope that they they'll come back. And but to 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 witness what they do, uh, especially when you get to see it up close, is just it's just incredible. Yeah, Jensen, you've been here as well a couple of times, and it's definitely an event that's bitten you as well. Yeah, you know, it's one of those events I've been to twice now, and every year afterwards, uh, I basically say I'm going to return. I, the way I explain it to my friends here in the U.S. is once you go, you kind of get bitten because it's um, it's a very unique race. And I think everyone knows how unique it is, and that, that sounds trite to say, but it, when you go and you see it and you're like... It finally hits you, and I think that's the uh, the real power of the TT. It's a it's a fantastic two weeks of 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 racing. Uh, as an American, to sit on a hedgerow a couple feet away from a motorcycle that's going 100 plus miles an hour right past you with just no barriers between you that's that's a very strange experience because we we live in a very litigious and watered down world sometimes but then also just the paddock atmosphere and the hospitality of the manx people the island itself is beautiful there's there's really man there's a lot going forward on a lot of different dimensions and and tony before we get any further we should point out that you live on the isle of man i do i do and um obviously every every year we get invaded by bike fans from all over the world uh, occasionally Jensen turns up, not very often, but he has done, and he's always very welcome. We hope to see him back. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to come back again. Here I am again, saying I'll be there. I'll be there next year. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, I've grown up with it, and it's it's a part of my life, uh, and it's something that uh, I'm a, I've always been a huge fan of, and uh, I live for for two weeks on the Isle of Man for for the TT. Uh, even before I was involved in it, when I was just a fan with my friends, and sometimes I look back to those days and think it would be quite nice to to go back and do that again. But at the moment, I'm still quite firmly involved in uh, 
with the photography and the occasional attempts to write. But um, no, uh, mo- the vast majority of people who live on the island look forward to for TT coming around. But there are people who will want to get away from it. And the home to stay scheme does actually enable those people to, to get away from it and rent their house out whilst they're away so that they maybe get a free holiday out of it. So they benefit from the TT as well, whether they want to, to be directly involved or not. So it's great for everybody. The The atmosphere on the island is incredible. And of course, it helps when you have two weeks of the weather that we've had this year, which is just, I've never, I can't remember anything like it. And I, I think back to 2007, which was similar, but I don't recall it being almost two weeks of of uh, sunshine non-stop it was just unbelievable yeah and i'm on the boat this evening so i was packing my bags just now just before we record the podcast and i had two pairs of jeans that i don't saw the light of day for anything more than a couple of hours one of the evenings just out of sheer habit of thinking that i'm going to need them yeah i was very disappointed with you steve for putting your jeans on you you let yourself and me down that day i'm not gonna lie i was exceptionally embarrassed by it (laughs) but you know we made up for a tone. You didn't wear your trousers at all. It was shorts and t-shirts for the entire two weeks. And I think usually... I don't want to hear about Tony not wearing trousers. Um, <laughs> usually you come to the Isle of Man expecting windburn and things like that. But we were putting Factor 50 on because it was actually really sunny, you know, and it was 24, 25 degrees. It was perfect conditions. And the first time we had any sort of a delay really was Wednesday of race week, which I don't remember ever seeing that tone. I think we had a 10-minute delay in practice. Yeah, I mean, that was the again was incredible was they they were able to get the practice sessions away on time there was like as you say steve wednesday was the first delay it was it was only 10 minutes so all the practice sessions got away on time but in some regards i think it was a bit of a double-edged sword for for the riders um they had so much practice time that by the end of practice week they were actually starting to feel tired and start feeling that because obviously they're out doing four or five laps every night and to do that every day is is physically demanding. And uh, we did speak to a few people and they were saying that they were starting to feel that a little bit, but they were ready to go. Everybody was qualified, was it was it Wednesday, Steve? Uh, pretty much everybody to a man was, was qualified and the races could have started on, on Thursday of practice week. It was unbelievable. Yeah, and what was quite interesting was like you, you were talking to John McGuinness for an interview for Asphalt and Rubber, and I think he did mention that one of the big advantages for him is his experience, and that was nearly negated this year just by the fact of everyone having so much track time. And as you said, Tony, just the amount of laps that they were doing just took everyone by surprise because we went out to Lamfell for the last fr- practice session um, we were expecting everyone just be going in to bed in a new chain or new new parts or things like that and just get themselves ready for the first superbike race on Saturday. And instead they went out and Hutchie broke the outright lap record on a stock bike. From a standing start. Yeah, well, it was it was crazy. Like we, we, we went there thinking it was just going to be a, a nice, easy evening and suddenly you're just absolutely blown away by the speeds. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was... Um, it was... One for the ages, I think, is a, is a phrase I've heard you use before, Steve, and I think that was definitely true um, from a weather perspective, from the action that we saw on track. Uh, it was just incredible. Uh, whether, whether we'll see uh, weather that good next year, I, I highly doubt when we've had one this good. Uh, surely the odds are that next year it's going to be terrible, but we don't want to think that far ahead. 
And what, what was interesting was, and Jensen, I'm sure you've seen it from talking to me and Tony over the course of the two weeks, but there was a huge amount of rubber put down on the track and it almost looked like a short circuit in some places because you had that much rubber down through the corners and even down some of the long straights. It almost looked like a diesel spill. There was that many black lines all the way down. And when we went up on the Friday evening, actually, we were just on the Cronk Navadi straight and the whole way down, you could see probably an 18-inch wide black lines just haven't been laid down, and it was something incredible. Well, that's the thing I think that that we need to highlight because, you know, we're, we're sitting here talking about the weather, but it's it's so massively important, not only in the sense because the TT always has this kind of love-hate relationship with the Manx weather that can be rather mercurial, but when you have so much sunshine and you have so many warm days, it sets up the situation where we see guys breaking records from a standing start in a super stock trim bike and um you know unfortunately there's a double-edged sword where that also leads to the speeds going up to the point where we're seeing more dangers on the road and we see more fatalities from competitors but it, it changes the course and it changes the event and like you said with john mcginnis it, it it brings the the level of competition up to a, a more equal playing field for for those that have less experience around the course and um, are battling against riders who who have a lot of course knowledge so it, it's a huge factor to, to to see that many uh sunny days on the isle of man and um you know uh, I think global warming, uh, you know, not to get too, too on a tangent about it, but like, you know, if you believe in climate change, that's only going to bring more of these, these TT fortnights with, with perfect weather about. So what you're saying is Jensen, we all need to have bigger cars. We all need to ensure that we get terrific weather on the Isle of Man and we turn the Isle of Man into California. Yeah, but not until I can get my little summer house there first. (laughs) You better start saving Jensen property on the Isle of Man. It's, it's quite expensive. Yeah, I think that's a case of going back to the law degree, JB. Yeah, I might have to suck it up for a couple of years. Although I heard it's a nice little tax shelter, so, you know. For now. Maybe in the end it works out. For now. I mean, anyway, we don't want to, we don't want to get into, uh, into the, the implications of tax on the Isle of Man. That's a whole different minefield. <laughs> yeah, it was a taxing enough two weeks for me actually just trying to survive so we'll just talk about the racing yeah let's get back to it uh, amazing amazing week of racing um who were you guys fancying to win before the tt started uh, steve and i were talking about it and um the guys who won the races were pretty much where we were at uh, especially as practice week wore on it was evident that the two guys to beat were going to be michael and hutchie and it was no great surprise to see to see the those guys take all five wins uh, between them and the the bigger bikes obviously the lightweights uh, they weren't competing in those but uh, i think i don't th- i think you would agree steve that um, we said beforehand it was going to be between those two we wouldn't be surprised actually if one of them had done four or five but uh, thankful i'm quite glad that they didn't and it was and it was spread a little bit yeah cuz we talked about it before every race and I think we pretty much had the top 2 agreed on and the only race where we were really wrong was when Dunlop had his problems but uh it was even for podium men it wasn't that great a surprise to see who ended up on the podium I think we expected McGuinness to be on the podium in the first superbike race maybe not in the senior but we had uh, Harrison back for podiums and things like that. I think Peter Hickman would have been in line for a couple of podiums as well, potentially, if he had had a bit more reliability. And that was really the only thing that hindered him. But I think overall, there were no real shocks in this year's TT, other than the sheer speed of everyone. Because I think this was a year, we talked about it before we came on air, where we, we looked at this as maybe a changing of the guards. 
And I think not even from the perspective of Hutchie or Michael separating themselves and making themselves that favourite. It's just the fact that they separated themselves and showed that big gap to the rest of the field. From a standing start, I think they were both 132s. And even if you look at the the first time we had a 130 lap here was on, within the last 10 years, it was 2007, I think. And now you've got guys averaging 130 for a six lap race. And it just shows that how much Dunlop and Hutchie have actually taken on compared to the likes of McGuinness. I, th- I think what was evident to me as well from some of the TV interviews that we saw was some of the guys were actually beaten before the race began. Uh, some of the interviews, I-, I remember James Hillier being interviewed and Connor Cummins were being interviewed and they were just, uh, I don't know if in awe is quite the right word, but they were looking at the, the way that Hutchie and Michael were riding and the lap speeds that they were putting in and and they were they kept commenting that they were taking it to a different level and uh, barring any mechanical problems or any mistakes um you just couldn't see either of those two being beaten yeah and what was interesting for me was just to see how much they made it into a short circuit race compared to what we've traditionally seen on the roads and Jensen, i'm sure when you came here before it was a case that you could see riders somewhat within themselves Whereas this week, I think everyone was pretty much just on it the entire time. Yeah, you know, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point that Tony brings up because we talk a lot about the mental side of motorcycle racing when we talk about MotoGP or Superbike. But yeah, you know, it applies obviously to all sorts of racing. I remember having a good conversation with with John Burroughs uh, the last time I was out there and talking about his mental preparation before the race and how he gets his mind set together. But you you, you can't discount that that mental element. Uh, it's huge, and and I think you're right. It sounds like a lot of the riders were beaten before they got to the to the starting gate, just because of what was going on in the practice sessions. I don't know if that's that's kind of like the unspoken elevation of the sport, where the the mental side and the mental fitness mental toughness is going to become more important or if it's just something that we're seeing this year because of of the the magnificent speeds we're seeing because of the weather but it's it's certainly it's certainly an interesting thing to see the different approaches that some of the riders take in building up their speed i know john mcginnis is very methodical in building up his speed over the week whereas michael dunlop kind of comes right out of the gates punching which is very much his style and that that's going to play into it absolutely uh i think itv4 did a great interview with dave molyneux about how he approaches when he uh, passes another sidecar on the track and he's, he's he was saying you know this is like closed circuit racing this is like short circuit racing like i get i get back in their face and i i push them and push them and push them to try and you know make them to make a mistake to to push their machine till it fails and and being aggressive like that and i think that's that's where the mindset's going now uh it's another it's another sport side of the sport that's evolving yeah i think it's definitely is a case of now there is that uh well maybe maybe it was mostly just because of the weather we had i think that this year was one of those years where everything came together for the likes of hutchie and dunlop the bmw is clearly the the best package on the roads now as well in superbike form and and the stock form as well like we see that with people like rudder having strong tts as well it was a case of that's the best bike to be on whereas the honda is an aging bike and jensen you obviously know an awful lot about the the Fireblade in terms of it as a road bike and the production plans for it and potentially there being a new bike next year. I know in World Superbikes that we're expecting a new Fireblade for next year, but it looks like even for the roads, this is what John McGuinness is going to need to be able to compete with everyone. So I think it's that perfect cycle nearly. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting thing with, with race bikes. Um, and I think that's something that, that needs to be understood is 
having the newest and greatest isn't always the best thing for, for racing because it takes time to take what was put out for the consumer and develop it into a racing bike. And some manufacturers are better at doing that development than others. And some manufacturers put more resources into it than others. So I think the Fireblade being as old as it was, there was an advantage for McGinnis for a little while because they were able to develop that platform. The platform was out for five, six years and we saw him winning on it because it had five, six years of road racing development, which is a lot different, we should point out, than than circuit racing development. Um, you know, there's definitely a, a trick to setting up those bikes for, for the Isle of Man TT, for the Northwest, for Ulster, for all those races. And it's a very different kind of setup than it is if you were going to go for a track day at Hareth or, or wherever, Silverstone, Donington. You know, it, it's just even those tracks are different from each other, but they're completely different than they would be on on a, a roads course. But then you hit that point where, you know, OK, so the Fireblades eight years going on longer now. And, um, you know, that's you know, that's going to be a detriment, especially as the rules um, restrict what you can do to the chassis and the engine as far as uh, developing power and developing new systems. I know there was a big controversy when uh, with traction control on the Yamaha R1 just a few years ago, and we're you know you're seeing the constraints that some of the teams have to operate in with what they're given from the factories, and now we're seeing the BMW kind of rise and be the bike to have. And, and that shouldn't surprise anyone. The, the S1000RR is a fantastic machine. It's a mature machine. They've already had a model refresh uh, in 2015, uh, which brought a lot of improvements to it, but it's still kind of the same core bike. So a lot of the racing development that occurred for it still applies. It won't be the best bike five years from now. It's probably still got a year or two in it. But, um, you know, when you look at someone like John McGinnis, who's suffering on the, the cbr 1000 R. You know, you just have to feel for them. And, and I think we were talking before the show a little bit about it. You know, there there is an element of, I think, his results, this TT and the last week TT, that come down to the machine that was that was underneath him. And and I think you can kind of see it this year, too, with Bruce, Bruce Anstey on the RC213VS, where a fantastic MotoGP machine basically for the street. But again, a bike that was developed for closed course racing not roads racing and to the time it takes to develop that into a roads racer is obviously a lot longer than than people realize and and it's tough to with anstey because it's kind of like what side of the bed did he wake up on this race but i think i think some of that result for him even is just a a, a glimpse into the development troubles or the development challenges that the teams have in getting ready for the tt and the other roads races yeah and i think even with the the rc as well Everyone was really excited to see what it was going to be like. Everyone really wanted that bike to be successful. But I think with Anstey having had his pra practice crash as well, he wasn't fully fit. And you could see that coming through. And as you said, like Anstey is that kind of rider that on his given day, he can be unbelievable. But then you can also see him where he's not quite at that limit as well. And I think with the RC having so little mileage on the bike because the first time he actually rode the bike was on, on the TT course and to turn up here with a bike like that it's it's one that has the potential to be a, an incredible bike even on the roads but you need to have the mileage you need to have the experience with it and I think that's where the data gain from this year could be quite interesting but who else is actually going to run that bike Paget seemed to be the only team willing to take a hundred and thirty-five thousand pound bike to the mountain course because even um, the factory Honda team have said that they're happy with the Fireblade. 
But the fa- the f- the factory Honda team will will need to follow Honda's directive. Honda's directive is their their super bike is the Fireblade, isn't it? So they need they have to follow that from what they what what Honda tell them to use uh, and provide them to use. Uh, but it was interesting to when we were talking to John, uh, and he was aware obviously that the the Honda was was now aging and the other manufacturers had caught up and perhaps surpassed it but at the same time he also pointed to the fact that the lap record was held by a Honda the two superbike races last year were won on on the fireblade so he was also aware that he whilst he was maybe feeling as though the Honda was now at the end of its lifespan it was still a competitive package yeah, and I think when you look at the Honda, it is still a competitive bike, especially in the hands of McGuinness. But I think this year it just showed that it's quite not on the same level as the BMW. And it, it is something small. At the end of the day, this is a 37 and three quarter mile circuit and you're coming in, you know, a couple of seconds off the pace. You know, it's not as if you're, you know, 30, 40, 50 seconds off the pace, you know. McGuinness's times were quite competitive and, and once he was in that group with Hutchie or with Dunlop he was able to set fast times it just looked like he couldn't do it from the standing start yeah one thing that'll be interesting for me as we look forward to, to next year is if McGuinness will actually take the number one starting spot again next year because if you look at those two races the superbike and the senior um, he himself said he had a poor first lap he thought he was pushing really hard um, saw how far down the order he was in the senior he was down in 10th place I think he said at the at the end of the at the end of the first lap uh, so whether next year he'll decide maybe to, to push back down to to number two or number three and have uh, somebody to chase and know that he's actually going well or whether whether he's actually slower than, than he thinks he's going. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point on it, Tony. And obviously, like, the starting orders for the TT are really important. If you're on form and you're off at number one, it's a big advantage because you can get down to that speed straight away. But if you're struggling a little bit, just being able to have that person just to use as a carrot in front of you can be a big advantage. And obviously, you don't want to fall too far back in the start order. Like If you look at uh, Dunlop started sixth on the road this year and it's it's probably right on the limit of where you want to start because otherwise you stop uh, actually gaining that time because you've got to overtake so many people and maybe that's something that McGuinness does have to look at because I think it's only the last two years that he's actually started number one on the road I can rem- I recall him doing it before I can't remember what year it was and at the time he did it for one year uh, and then the next year he came back and he was back to number three and now he's gone back the last couple of years uh, to number one again but uh, personally, I, I I wouldn't be at all surprised to see him running number three next year. Assuming assuming he's coming back, which uh, well, you get the vibe that he that he will be. Yeah, I think um, it's it's definitely something that needs to be looked at. It and JB, you would have um, seen quite a lot. You actually probably would have known far more about what was going on through the races than myself and Tony. But uh, just from what we saw trackside and what we were looking at from radio tt and things like that it definitely did look like there was just that bit of time surrendered early in the races for mcginnis but uh, again we saw just how strong the honda team is in the pits and that looked like was yeah. what was putting him back into contention yeah no i think you're spot on with that the uh the pit times that the honda factory team were doing were were definitely head and shoulders above uh the rest uh, just absolute great effort from them and those boys uh, which is always funny too, because you would think the, or at least the way it should be, the the fuel should be the limiting factor 
on the on the pit stop using those gravity cans instead of uh, some of the more uh, shall we say modern systems that are available. We definitely saw the the pits making a, ch uh, a factor of themselves for for a number of riders. And I think it's interesting to point out too that with McGinnis coming back, I feel like next year there's there's a lot of unfinished business there. Uh, the new Fireblade coming out for sure. Honda's going to want to have John on that and. Um, with the result that he got at the uh, TT zero, I feel like maybe there's a little redemption uh, there as well. And I, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't show up. I, I would certainly understand it if he didn't, but uh, I'd be very surprised if, if he, if he didn't show up next year to, uh, to change some minds. Um, I think with that, it's a good segue for us. We, we actually did a little bit of an interview, Steve, uh, you interviewed uh, John McGinnis while at the TT and maybe we should play that for the, uh, the audience and, um, then we'll come back and, and, and have a chat about it. Okay, so we're joined with John McGuinness today. And John, obviously, comes to the TT 23 times a winner, but uh, what is it about the island that keeps drawing you back? It's a good question, and I, would, I wish you could answer that for me, because I don't know, it just it's got hold of me, this Isle of Man place. And like I say, it's my 20th year racing here, and 80-odd starts or something, and, uh, you know, I've ridden every, every type of bike, two-stroke, four-stroke, single-cylinder, V-twin, everything, but... I don't know, it's just a just a beautiful island, you know, it's a special circuit, you know, it's the oldest track in the world, longest track and you know, if you ever win one you'll you probably understand why you do come back, you know, but it's uh yeah, it's just just a just a beautiful island in the middle of the Irish Sea that produces some spectacular stuff and you know, I've had a bit of success here and you know, I'll uh, keep plugging away until I stop enjoying it or stop being competitive and I'll uh, hang my boots up. When we look around the awning here that's in the paddock area and there's a lot of the bikes that you've ridden to, to wins, which ones are the special ones for you? Well, I mean, obviously, they, they all, they all, I look at them all and they all tell me a story straight away as soon as I look back at them, you know what I mean? I'm like, well, I remember that, I remember that, you know. And, I mean, obviously, the first win's probably important, but it's, it's a long time ago, you know, it's gone now, you know. But, you know, it was a special, special day. 250, you know, I was leading the British Championship. I was, you know, I won my first TT, a lap record and all that. And it was a bit of an anti-climax when I won it. You know, I didn't know how to celebrate or do a nude streak or whatever. I didn't know what to do, but it was just all happening and that was it, you know. But, you know, I won my first big bike race on that Yamaha R1 over there. That was a special day, beat, beat David Jeffries' lap record. And, you know, TT was in a bit of a tough time and then, you know, after Dave got killed, 0-4-5, TT was sort of in the doldrums a bit and then, you know, it's been picked up and now it's pretty big. But 07, first centenary, uh, centenary TT, first 130 mile an hour, that was really special. You know, electric bikes there, I don't know, we could, uh, we could sit here and talk forever, but they're all pretty special and all, uh, they all play a, big, play a big part in my TT career and success over here for 20 years. You know? When you look at the 20 years, like you talked there about 10 years ago, TT was in the doldrums. When you look around the paddock now and you see the level of excitement again, what do you mm. see? fans in terms of that change I don't know I just think they can get close they can get close to the riders they can get uh, there always has been you know there's a diehard fan as well and who's been coming for, for years and years but looking around here now there's, there's young kids there's younger younger people you know it, the, the word spread around in it all over the place that how good this thing is and you know people are just wanting to get here you know and, and when they get here they're, they're booking the boat for next year straight away you know it's amazing I've you know, I've raced in Australia I've raced in Suzuka I've raced everywhere in World Endurance whatever and then 
not long before we're talking about the TT and like, oh, I'd love to go, or you know, I can't get a boat, or I've been, I went five years ago, and I loved it, it was great, I want to get back in that. So they're doing something right. I don't know what it is, but they're doing something right, you know. And the paddock, like you say, the buzz around here, the atmosphere, the professionalism of the paddock, you know, it looks looks proper now these days. But like I said earlier, the the actual true true harshness of the roads is exactly the same, you know. Getting the helm on and riding the bikes the same. This is one of the few times whenever road racers do come to the fore, and even Grand Prix this weekend in Catalonia, most of the GP riders are going to be tweeting about the TT, they're going to be talking about the TT. When you meet up with any, any of those guys, what's the level of respect that you get from them? Yeah, we get plenty of Well, I think we do. I speak to Valentino now and again, and he's invited me to his ranch, and you know, and I speak to him a little bit. I always have a bit, bit of banter with him, whatever, after he's had a bit of success on that and stuff on the motor GPs. But, yeah, they all, they all, I think they all think we're a little bit screw loose, maybe. But uh, so are them, you know. <laughs> you know, they're riding. They do 220 mile an hour, won't they, all the way down last last week at uh, Magello or whatever. So they're as mad, you know. So, uh, but it's it's what we do, you know. It's what we've been brought up with, and uh, you know, I know Valoris Caparossi, he's been, you know, Hayden's been, Lorenzo's been. You know, we've had some good top top jockeys here so uh, and they've all been blown away by it you know, there's, there's no way they can they can say any different you know all Weber's just spoke to Weber this morning he's on his way in his helicopter to watch tonight so you know it's uh, this, they all love it <laughs> they all love it but uh, you know if it's not for you it's not for you but uh, old Loris Baz has been tweeting he's been peeking as well so yeah, yeah it's good it's on fire just you talked to Tony there earlier about how you'll even go out and just watch a session maybe through the week and things like that. Yeah. When you go out and you sit in the hedge and you're watching, what do you see as a as do you watch that as a fan or do you watch that still as a writer? No, I watch it as a fan, you know, I just like to get a radio and just watch, you know, just just see the commitment from some of the guys and some, you know, I mean I never get really to see any solo stuff and I, I normally try and get out and watch the second sidecar race or something or whatever but uh, I mean the top guys at that you know they, all, they don't get the credit they deserve them boys are world class they're up so when you've got the guys leading the world championship here Reevesy and a few of them guys you know them boys screw it on you know so uh, you can see how hard they're pushing and how, how much they want to win it and how much it means to them and stuff and you know it's uh, yeah it's pretty pretty awesome I just I'm just a fan really I can ride it by fast now and again so. When you, when you look at uh, you've got your British Championship 250 bike over there, you were a 500 point score. Just what is it that that made you turn towards the roads instead of focusing still on the? I always wanted targets? to do it. I always wanted to do it, but I didn't know how. You know, I was a big TT fan. My dad raced on the roads a little bit, and you know, my hero was Joy Dunlop and stuff, and came across here, and I was 10 years old, year after year after year, and like, I always wanted to do it, but. You know, I wanted to do both, and which, which is exactly what I did for a long time. You know, I wasn't a bad short circuit rider, and uh, you know, but the TT was always nibbling away at me, and but I didn't. You know, once I got a bit of support, a bit of new bike like that bike in the corner, Paul Bird like got involved, and you know, I didn't want to come half-heartedly with a lot of rubbish bikes and stuff because you need some need some good people around when you come here you know you need to grow up a little bit I was 25 years old when I first came here as well so I didn't I'd served my time I'd done my done some British racing done some other bits and pieces and stuff so uh, it was uh, yeah it was the right time to come and do it you know I'd grown up a bit and so I 
but like, you know, Hickman's doing both now. I mean, you know, you've got Josh Brooks; he could do both. You know, he's still he's desperate to get back here, but it's just not really fitting into his into his diary at the moment. But he'll be back, you know. You know, Steve Blater did it, Steve Islop did it, you know, DJ did it. I mean, all we're all could do both, you know, and I did both for a lot. So, just just an extra race on the calendar, really. Just when you look at it being the way that the road set season is structured and a lot of guys not really doing too much, whether it's for the superbikes on a stock thousand or something like that, do you think do the roads riders need to start riding more and more like you? Obviously, most so. of your training is best just on riding bikes. Mm. Well, you can see that now. I mean, Hutch is on fire in Q second and he's sliding second in the British Superstar Championship. And, you, know, you can see that in his riding now, do you know what I mean? He's he's hit the ground running here. Michael Dunlop's done some BSB, he's hit the ground running, you know. I've I've been going alright. Peter Hickman's doing some I mean even Rutter's probably showing the best he's shown at the TT for a long time because he's doing some BSB, so and you've got Bruce who doesn't do the right lot, but he's been on his ear all twice, hasn't he? Uh, but yeah, I think you need to do some riding. It's difficult to come here now. The bikes are so powerful, you know, that the you need to understand, you need to have the understanding of the bikes really before you just get here and uh, start flying around here, you know. Well, I think so, anyway. Bit of bike fitness, bit of, bit of riding, yeah. It's 20 years here, but have you ever seen as competitive a field? No, no, never, never. No, I mean, you just look down the start, listen, you go, he can win, he can win, he can win, he can win. So, you know, I don't think we've seen the best of a lot of the riders yet, you know. Uh, a lot more to come from Hillier and Hickman and, and uh, Lee Johnson and Dean Harrison, you know, I think we've. The proof will be tomorrow, really. It's hard to make any predictions. If you had a crystal ball, mate, we'd be, be setting a yacht, wouldn't we, in Monaco now? <laughs> Win the lottery or something. We'll see what, see what the race brings tomorrow, you know. I was talking to Josh Brooks about it, and he said that the one thing about the danger element of here is that once you actually get on the bike and the visor's down, you're on your bike, you've been riding your whole life, and it's something that's natural to you, but it's once you come back into the paddock and it's dealing with the mechanics dealing with the team dealing with your family that's actually what brings the strain of the fortnight is that the same case for you it's constant strain tt is not fun anymore at times it's just aggro from start to finish the only time you get peace is when you've got my visor shut and i'm going down rail do you know what i mean it's just just tough you know i mean i love probably because i mean if you're midfield you're not going to get by the day but like now I've, my commitments are, are hideous and you know i, I just can't wait to sometimes get on the bounce have an hour's peace, you know, because I'm dragged from pillar to post all day long. Today, my schedule's flipping flat out again, and it gets on top here. You know, the more and more the days go along, you get a bit shorter with people, you get more fed up with people, and then you know, just. <laughs> but I suppose, you know, if we're not successful, nobody will talk to you anymore. Yeah. I mean, I remember in 2010. Hutchie did the five and nobody wants to speak to me, do you know what I mean? It's just it's sometimes one of them sports in it where nobody gives a shit if you do if you're not doing any good, but once you're doing alright they want a piece of you. But uh, I don't know. It's uh, it is difficult to try and balance the family thing. I've got the missus here, you know, she's wanting to go for an ice cream somewhere in Peel and I'm I'm getting dragged to an interview, so there's, there's, there's two sides to the coin always, you know what I mean? But I just gotta try and balance it on, keep it all keep it all an even keel and uh, the most important bits of racing, I suppose you can go for an ice cream anytime, but you can't race bikes forever. You just gotta treat it as a job now and uh, and uh, get stuck into the program. Is it difficult sometimes to separate? That? Very difficult. Very difficult. Because uh, I still, you know, enjoy the time with the kids and stuff. You know, it's their time off as well, and you know they they, they don't have to be here. Do you know what I mean? But, uh, they always want to be here. So. 
that's perfect, Jay. Thanks very much. Right. Best luck this week. Cheers. I better just do some more of these, Mr. All right. Well, that was a great interview, Steve. Um, what were your thoughts as you were talking to John? Maybe that didn't come across in the interview. My first thought was that this was the first time that Tony's ever introduced me to a world-class bike racer. <laughs> Tony has some interesting friends, doesn't he? It's kind of surprising, right? Well, I hang around with you guys. You're all quite interesting. But yeah, it was it was a bit of a role reversal for me. Uh, over the last few years, I've been fortunate enough to get introduced to... Um, a few uh, riders in the MotoGP paddock through through Steve, so it was nice to be able to to return the favour and uh, introduce Steve to John. And uh, John didn't uh, throw him out of the the tent, so he must have done okay for a, for a newbie at the TT. Yeah, it was it was definitely an interesting interview for me because it's always it's always great whenever you talk to anyone that is at the top of their field, whether it's in bike racing, car racing, any sport really. And you see an awful lot of similarities with people, and I think Tony, you'd agree that when we talked to John, you could see that there is that focus once he's in an interview setting or just whenever he's got any job to do. And we saw it really illustrated perfectly the day before actually where we went down to you had an interview lined up with him and we went down and John had been on the go from eight o'clock that morning and this was two o'clock in the afternoon and I think in the A&R interview I think he even alluded to just how crazy the time schedule is for him. Yeah it's it must be an incredibly difficult time for John trying to complete all his 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 media obligations as well as trying to prepare to ride the most demanding course in the world and uh, i don't envy him having to do that at all that's always the thing that's really impressed me with with the tt riders and the tt paddock in general is just how approachable even someone like john mcginnis who's who's he's he's the man right you know um i remember my first year on the alaman i did an interview with him and picked the absolute worst time i didn't go through the press person just showed up at his motorhome and I don't think he wanted to talk to me one bit because um, he was winding down his day. But he was super gracious about it. He cooked me a hot dog while we had a chat. And, you know, name a, name a, sh- a, a short circuit rider that would do that for you. Uh, I think that's immense to the for the sport. And I think that's why the TT is so special, too, is to have that kind of down-to-earth atmosphere, even from the star or even from the sport's biggest star. It's just fantastic. Yeah, and it is a case of, like me and Tony talked about it, where this was effectively getting an interview with Valentino Rossi at a MotoGP race. John McGuinness is the biggest star in road racing, and he is able to make the time for things like that. And that is what separates a lot of the roads guys from some of the GP riders or even superbike riders, just where they understand that for two weeks of the year, the world does revolve around them. But from, you know, the day after the senior, or once you get back home, by and large, the road racers are anonymous and they understand that this is the the two weeks or the month where they need to take advantage of what they can do that other riders just aren't willing to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and we, John alluded uh, to that whilst we were talking to him. I asked him about how he handles it and he said it was difficult uh, and he just tries to, to deal with it as best as he can. And uh, from, 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 what I, from, where, from where I sit, he seems to deal with it better than most. Uh, trying to get uh, any time with some of the other guys is almost impossible. They uh, they want they shy away from that kind of thing, and that's understandable because they don't they're not constantly involved in the the media scrum as uh, a lot of MotoGP riders would be, and they they're not interested in that side of thing. They're there simply to race their bikes, and someone like Michael Dunlop will come along and 
I think Guy Martin is a similar character. They like to just be able to unpack the bike from the back of the van with a few trusted guys and go out and, and race, and they don't want to be involved in the in the media side of things. Although I do feel as though Guy Martin does contradict himself a little bit on that with his with his new job as a television personality. But Michael Michael Dunlop is certainly one who is uh, shies away from from uh, the media side of the the game. My, Michael reminds me a lot of Casey Stoner in that regard, where I think he's just a guy who wants to show up and ride his bike. Uh, and, and the rest of it, the, the pageantry that comes along with it, he's just really not interested in doing. And, and guys like that too. But like you said, I think guys more, it's more of a dynamic problem with guy. Let's just leave it at that. Yes. I think the most important thing was that we saw a TT this year where you didn't have Guy Martin and we had a hugely successful TT and there was more interest in it this year than what I can remember for a lot of years past. I think there was a worry that maybe without the Guy Martin character that we'd struggle to fill TV time or, you know, get, uh, get stories online and different things like that. But it, it looked to me that this was proof that the event is bigger than any of the participants. Yeah. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to Voldemort the, the conversation, but you know, I, there's there's a lot that I think you can say about the TT having more to offer than than just Guy Martin. Obviously, he was a fantastic personality. He's a great person to have in the sport, regardless of what you think about him. He, you know, he brings something to it. But I don't think his level of influence and stature is like say a Valentino Rossi in MotoGP, where I fundamentally worry about what Grand Prix racing is going to look like in the post Rossi years. Um, I, I do think some fans are gonna are gonna get up and leave, but. The Alaman TT has always been about more riders. It's been about, you know, Michael Dunlop and, and his rise and, and speed. Michael, uh, John McGinnis's dominance, King of the Mountain, Hutchie winning five races. And, you know, obviously he's on a tear this year and hopefully for years to come. You know, there's a lot of other really good storylines that, that go on and down through the field. And, and the Alaman itself has done a great job of continuing to gain more exposure for the TT. The fact that I'm an American sitting here talking to you boys about it, I think is a great testament to it. There's been some inroads about doing a World Series, and I'm not quite sure where they're at with that. That seems to oscillate from year to year, and we can debate whether that's a good idea or not. But, you know, we're seeing a TV package on Velocity here in the U.S., a channel that has a lot of motorsport racing. That's that's accessible for a lot of people. It's not probably in every home. It's not probably in everyone's TV package. But if you want to watch the TT, uh, the coverage from North 1, it's available in, in countries outside of the UK now. So that's that does a lot to elevate the sport. And for me, I'm looking for the next the next step. And I know that you guys maybe have some pushback on that for, for live coverage and whatnot. But you know, they you can't you can't disagree that the stature of the TT as an international event is is at an all time high. Yeah, and I think that the key thing for the TT is that the main star of the show is the circuit. It's something that when you come here, when you watch on TV or when you watch the documentary film a couple of years ago close to the edge it is a case of you can't understand how guys are going out there and racing on these roads at those speeds and just the sheer bravery of it and that's why from year to year the stories change but it's the production from north one they do a great job to be able to show exactly why the tt is so special they do a great job to show why people should be interested and they do a great job to show why people in the us or people in different countries should be interested in it because it's easy for me and tony to be interested in it we grew up around road racing it's easy for people from ireland from the isle of man or you know a couple of isolated countries to love it but it's where if you're able to make sure that someone like 
Jensen over in the States is actually staying up until the middle of the night or you know four o'clock in the morning to find out the results. It shows just the pull of this event. And maybe it is a case of down the line we need to have more coverage or we need to have you know a few different things but i think right now they've struck a really good balance to help grow the sport and to be able to showcase exactly what they can do because we had two weeks of great coverage from north one with documentaries like the the hutchie miracle man documentary and jensen you mentioned about the uh, molly feature as well and it is a case of it showcases why this is something unique this is something that when you flick through the channels you'll stop to watch no i think you hit the nail on the head and just look at social media look what look what gets shared it's not it's not the the john mcginnis interview it's not um you know guy martin on his bike it's it's these guys going you know just flat out on a road course jumping turns getting the wheels loose getting the bikes up in the air two wheels off the ground wheelies head shakes i mean it it's the spectacle of pushing a motorcycle to the limit that is what's drawing the crowd yeah and and we're talking about north one and we're giving north one a lot of praise and um one of the best things that's happened to the TT in the, in probably the last 10 years has been the North One coverage. But you also talked about social media and there's an awful lot of videos on YouTube uh, and places like that that are getting 30 million shares and people are seeing this and just going, what is what is that? That my brain's just melted looking at that. And, uh, and that is also putting uh, the awareness out there for people that there is this what on the outside seems insane race uh, on closed roads on the Isle of Man, but that perhaps people, even motorcycle people, uh, weren't aware of before. And they're having that uh, access to everything online is, is probably another factor in the success of the TT in the last 10 years, whilst perhaps other motorsports have struggled. Yeah, and I think it is the videos online that make a big difference, Tom, because if you remember back 12 months ago, it was the first time I was coming over to the TT was last year. And I think at uh, around Le Mans GP time, I suddenly just needed to sit there and watch loads of TT videos. It was, I think it was Northwest 200 week that year. And uh, we ended up spending pretty much the, the whole week just watching TT videos, then the Northwest and things like that. And it, it's that that makes it special and it makes people want to watch it and makes them want to come here. And like you've seen your island be overrun for the last three weeks with people just here to see an unbelievable spectacle. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we talked about it before, uh, and most people genuinely do look forward to the TT, and uh, they they love the atmosphere around the place. And looking at another sport at the moment, we've got the European Championships on at the moment. There's violence happening. There's um, people in hospital, and we've just had 40,000 people on the Isle of Man out drinking every night, and with with no trouble from anybody everybody gets along and um it's a it is almost like a there's a, a community feel to it all everybody rides a bike and everybody's here just to have a good time and there's no trouble that comes along with it as well which is which is also fantastic i think that's a great a great point to highlight tony and i <clears throat> i don't think i do it justice trying to explain it to people here when i talk about the tt but the hospitality of the manx people really is unparalleled uh i could i could probably give you an anecdote about it but i won't i won't bore you with it but i've always been immensely impressed with the people of the island the, the people that come and then once you get there and you have like you said forty thousand bikers and it's just 
you know, I haven't experienced like that brotherhood in motorcycling since like maybe when I first started riding bikes. Maybe that's just because I'm like an old jaded journalist now, but it, it brought me back to that point when I first started motorcycling and like maybe the first couple of times, like another motorcyclist waved to me as I went by and you felt like, hey, there's kind of a connection here. There's kind of a kinship. Now take that out to 40,000 plus people in an island that's hosting this race and a people that are that are hosting us. And it's, it's, it's really, really special. And it's one of those things that I think you don't fully appreciate until you're there and you experience it. Because like you said, there, there isn't a lot of riffraff, you know, there's some, there's some trouble on the roads and some spectators think they're John McGinnis after the, uh, the roads open back up and they get themselves into a bit of trouble. And, you know, anytime there's, there's massive amounts of drinking in the bushes tent, there's going to be some trouble, but it's not, it's not anything that's elevated beyond just petty crimes and misdemeanors. It's, it's, it's just silly stuff. And I think, I think you, I think other racing series need to take a look at what the TT has in the sense of the product that they're, that they're showcasing the, the road racing itself is so lurid it's something that you want to share on social media you want to talk about with your friends we want to have a podcast about it um, because it is just this this amazing visual experience for for fans that are there and that fans that are watching it online and then you look at how approachable the paddock is how approachable their stars are how down earth it is that and the kind of media packages that they're getting and the production value that's going into it. i mean they're really hitting a lot of things i think right on the head and um i think that's why it's growing so so well and that's why it's becoming so internationally known because they're doing a lot of things right i think possibly the most interesting thing that jensen said there was as the youngest member on the podcast today he's the jaded journalist um but i do think that it is definitely a case of you come here to the isle of man and it is an incredible place to visit but it is also a place where everyone makes you feel welcome. Like I've been here last year and this year, and it is just an extension of being at home. It looks the same as Ireland. People are as friendly as at home. And it everyone does make you welcome to be here, except for down in the chip shop, Tony. Oh, the chip <laughs> shop. The, lo- the world famous chip shop that we won't name. <laughs> you can tell that funny anecdote if you like, Steve. So me and Tony, the only night that we actually went down to the chip shop, obviously in the home of cheese, chips and gravy, we only went to the chip shop once. But we went in anyway and uh, some man came in and said, can I get some cod? And the girl behind the counter just turned to him and said, no, next. <laughs> and lucky enough, me and Tony were next in the queue, so we thought it was great. <laughs> in, in fairness to the girl, she had told the people in front of us that they were just selling what, what they had because it had been so busy that they didn't have anything left. But unfortunately, she didn't actually tell the gentleman that. She just said no. So we were we went out laughing <laughs> with, with our sausage and chips because that's what we could get. <laughs> well, the Minx girls are a special breed, oh, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. She must have been from Peel. <laughs> and that's an in joke. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that's a joke that probably makes a lot more sense to people of the Isle of Man. But uh, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. We have digressed, so we'll take a take a break, and uh, when we come back, we'll continue just talking about things like the TT Zero race, and uh, then we'll just wrap up our thoughts on the 2016 Isle of Man TT. Hey guys, Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. All right, now back to the show. All right, and we're back. 
boys, I want to talk about a race that's that's near and dear to my heart, and I and I'm maybe curious to see, especially from you, Tony, what the reaction is for the the TT Zero race. Um, electric bike racing and electric bikes in general is kind of what I've hung my hat on professionally. Uh, I've ridden most of those bikes. Uh, I've been to most of those races, and it's something I definitely have a have a strong passion for and definitely believe in. But when the TTX GP started in 2009, I believe, and then morphed into the TT Zero, it wasn't exactly the most well-received race at the Alaman TT. And I'm curious to hear if this year or or in the years since, if it has morphed into something that is more respected in the TT paddock. Um. The, I think uh, the fans and the people in, in the paddock certainly respect what Mugen have been doing and more recently Victory. Uh, but as a race, uh, it's very difficult to to value it as a race because you have, what, seven bikes left the line, Steve? And we had the, the fast with the, is it the Saralia? Yeah. The two, the two bikes, which um, it almost seemed as though they brought them out onto the line just for some publicity because the bikes were clearly not going to go anywhere. Um, so, I mean, so this is something that Steve and I have talked about during the week at the TT here. And we had a practice session the other night where uh, they had five bikes went out on track. Uh, the next night, I think there were six, and um, Steve and I were almost going to have a sweepstake as to how many bikes were going to start the race. Uh, so I think it's got to the point now where it needs to be considered more of an exhibition than a race and uh, to, to see obviously the advances and in such a small uh, period of time to, to where they're at now and this was year was obviously the first year I think since it started that we haven't seen the lap time in and the lap speed increase uh, whether that is as down to the fact that John um, had a problem uh, and had to pull in and Bruce didn't actually need to, to push and he was able to conserve the, the battery power uh, I don't know, but for me personally, uh, I don't feel there is enough there now to justify this as a race. I would personally like to see it carry on, but maybe perhaps as an exhibition lap to see how far the technology can be pushed. Yeah, and I think for me that the key thing is that it shouldn't be a TT. I think it's a, the bikes are incredible. The Mugen and the Victory are great. And Tony used it a lot of up-close sh- shots of the Victory for a Jensen and A&R. And the bike is incredible. The Mugens and the Victory teams, they have put in the effort. But when you look at the, the Belgian bikes, when you look at there was a French bike here as well, and the Belgian bikes didn't turn a wheel. The French bike came past and it was you know 20 30 mile an hour it was it was a joke he was he was beeping his horn as he was going past it it was what you couldn't take that seriously i think like cal crutchlow's probably cycled the mountain course faster than that bike went around and that that's not even trying to be funny that's just saying how off the pace that bike was and to have a field where you've got i think as you said seven bikes took the start of the race you know that's that's not enough i think when you look at things like the lightweight tt that's with the super twin bikes you know like it they've got a full field it's a competitive field whereas we knew going into this race that it would be a mugen one two if it was both both bikes running on on schedule and without problems we knew that william dunlop would be third on the victory and we knew there'd be a huge gaping gap to the rest of the field and much as i love the bikes because you go down into the mugen garage you go down into the victory garage and they look incredible you can appreciate them for the technology they are but i can't 
I can't take it as a TT win. No, I think Jensen will, um, as it's got a lot more background on this and a lot more knowledge in terms of the cost of putting one of these together to actually to end up with a, a field of 30, 40 bikes to give it any credibility as a, as a race. Um, I just, it's not going to be feasible at the moment. I wouldn't have thought Jensen with regards to the cost of building a competitive electric bike for the TT. Yeah, it's really hard. Uh, I remember when this started, uh, when it was still the TTX GP and one of the, the comments I made to Azer, the man behind that was it was too soon. It was too much too soon. Uh, the, the market wasn't there. The technology's not quite there. And I think we're, I think we're, I think I was right about that. I hate to toot my horn on that cause I wish I was wrong. Um, but I think, I think too though, and, and where I disagree with you guys is I think we're at that cusp, you know, unfortunately, uh, Michael says passed away not too long ago and it was great to see the, uh, all the TT zero competitors carrying his logo around the course one more time in his memory. But I think if he and Moto Sis were still involved that that made it a good competition and then you add in a team like victory and you add in a team like sarah leo which will be i think sarah leo in, a, in maybe a year maybe two possibly three years will be a really good competitor at the tt and mugen obviously will continue their effort and i think victory next year could be right there with them especially if they really put the energy into their uh, program no pun intended but we're starting to see from the motorcycle manufacturers interest in electric racing or not sorry not electric racing but in electric motorcycles we're seeing yamaha coming out uh soon with an electric street bike we're seeing honda definitely play around with it and you can say what you will about honda's link to team mugen but we're also seeing ktm we're also seeing some other uh startups in, in the u.s space and uh, there's definitely a couple brands out there that could could come to the tt and showcase their technology and are just choosing not to uh, and I think I think the biggest hurdle for for the TT organizers going forward is to be is to get those kind of buy-ins and to get those kind of commitments. There is like a if you build it, they will come element to this. And I think I think we're we're right there on the cusp of like this could work and we could get enough people involved to make it good racing. I think you're right in the sense that it's not great racing right now. I talked to the Mugen guys about it uh, a little bit after the race, and there's there's some reasons why uh, we didn't see a 120. Uh, mile per hour lap this year and and some of that is because john was having trouble with his his kill switch uh and then bruce goes by him and sees oh hey john's having trouble i just need to get this thing home because it is obviously very important for mugen to get on that top podium step and when you don't really have someone pushing you from behind you can kind of phone it in and and get there and obviously um victory which is really just a, a repurposed bramo motorcycle one of the first competitors at the ttx gp there there's still an evolutions with their bike if i had to throw a criticism at them they probably sandbagged it last year and, and brought their full bike potential this year and will develop their technology going forward from there I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a new bike from them uh in the next year but I get it from a fan perspective. I, you know, and I've seen them go around the course too, and it's hard to to get excited. And if I can't get excited about it, then I don't really know how I can expect someone else to. But I love the fact that the TT is the go-to place for electric motorcycle racing right now. They are the pinnacle of it. That's where you showcase your technology. That's where you can you can make your bragging rights. And uh, I hope they continue with it, and I hope they continue to, to keep it as a race to, to, to lure those other people in and to, and to continue that heritage because it's, you know, you 120 mile an hour laps, no joke, fellas. 
you know, and to see them knocking down that door is, is extremely impressive in such a short amount of time. I mean, we're sitting here kind of moaning the fact, oh, they only did 118 this year. It was 119 last year. Oh, what was me? It's like, yeah, but the first year they didn't even crack 100. The second year they didn't even crack 100. So, you know, it, it's been a huge progress. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see where it goes from there. Yeah, and I think that, as we said, like the bikes are incredible. There's nothing wrong with the speed of the Mugens and the Victory. It is just the volume. Yeah. And it is just not having quite enough bikes on the grid. Because if you look at... You know, the Super Twins is, I think, an apt comparison because it was a new class within the last 10 years as well. And you're looking at uh, a class that has 40, 45 bikes in the class as well. And it it's comparable speeds. I would love to see... 30 electric bikes out in the TT Zero race because then I think it is a true race but right now it's an exhibition race and the speeds are incredible the technology is awesome and it is a race that I think everyone would like to see as a competitive showing but right now I think they need to wait until they can actually have a cost effective solution for the bikes where you can end up with more teams actually using them yeah that's true and and to answer the the question that Tony actually asked me instead of the little rant that I went on instead, you know, you know, how much does it cost to go racing in a lightweight TT class? I mean, it's tens of thousands of dollars, but not, not a lot. You know, I don't know what the, what, um, the top guys are spending to, to put their racing platforms together, but you know, the guys a little bit farther down the grid can't be spending more than 10, 20,000 pounds and contrast that with, <laughs> with the, the, the TT zero guys. I mean, even the university efforts are probably spending, you know, 50 to a hundred thousand pounds easy. And you look at the, the, the top teams, I mean, I'm sure, uh, victory's probably spent in the neighborhood of a million dollars. I know Mugen spent well more than a million dollars. The Motus's team was operating on a seven figure, uh, budget as well. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's massive amounts of money to go racing at that level. And, and, uh, I think Steve, you and I were talking before the uh the show a couple days ago about it about filling in the grid with the production bikes but then i think we run into that problem where where the production technology is at and there's definitely a disparity between the racing technology and the production technology and the gap between the two of them is is quite large you know and you know yeah we could probably put 30 victory impulse tt street bikes on the grid we could probably put 30 um, zero motorcycles or, or, you know, pick another brand, Energica, whoever, uh, yeah, you could put them on the grid, but the speeds wouldn't be nearly as impressive. I mean, we're talking 80 mile an hour lap times, 90 mile an hour lap times. Like I'd be very, very surprised if one of them cracked a ton, cracked the ton. Um, and I don't think that's the kind of racing that people want to line up and watch on the hedgerow either. Uh, not 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 to give it not to call it a race no, to, no. As, as we've said the the technology is incredible the mugens are a, a work of art the victories a work of art what they've been able to achieve uh, in a in a short period of time to be doing almost 120 miles an hour laps is is fantastic but to call it a race now when basically it's a three horse race you, you barring any issues the podium is settled when they went as soon as they've left the line it's just which order it's going to be finishing in um that's that's not a race no that's fair my, and my only pushback to that is i feel if it turns into an exhibition then you can just start the death clock on the tt0 as a whole i think that would be the end of electric motorcycle racing for at least a decade and maybe that's Maybe that's what needs to happen. I, I I really don't want that. I really don't think that. But 
there is a little bit of there's like um you know shompter where it's like we kind of need a little creative destruction would a good solution be to have at the manx gp a tt0 as well tone or at some of the other road races at uh, some different events to to try and generate a bit more interest in it and a bit more value in the bike that you build because if you're only building it to have one race it's not ever going to be cost effective to spend the kind of money that mugen are spending to only have it for one one day a year the the problem you've, you they they face obviously is the sheer length of the tt course and I'm, I'm sure bikes can be built that will go fast in a straight line and they might last for they might do be very competitive over three laps of a of a shorter circuit but the big problem is to get something that's going to be competitive going all the way around the tt course and um I know it's, it's something that's close to your heart, Jensen, but uh, for me personally, uh, there is, un- until the technology becomes more affordable and there are 20, 30 bikes on the grid where 10 of those may are, are going to be a bit more competitive, and then I, you just struggle to, to see a future for it until such time as that technology becomes affordable and people can put these bikes together. A cost. You know, it's interesting, Steve, that you bring up the the other courses because the length of the TT course is the issue. Uh, you have to carry so much battery around the the course, and the battery is what makes the bike so heavy. And then that's what you know. There there will be a plateau just because these are five hundred plus pound bikes, five hundred fifty pounds and on. Um, and if you went to a shorter course, yeah, pick pick any, pick any other road race. Really, you know, Macau would actually be a fantastic venue for for these bikes um especially being in 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 asia and that's where a lot of this battery technology and motor technology is coming out of so there there is some value there and and you get the marketing out of it but at the end of the day too like especially like the teams like mugen and and victory the the r&d budget is the r&d budget is the r&d budget they're going to spend that no matter what and maybe you get a little bit more value out of it in in the marketing side but i think you know this is this is true prototype racing where i think the real value to go race is these companies and these brands are are learning a lot about their machines and what they're capable of and 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 encountering problems that would be much more difficult to replicate on the street and improving the product through that Uh, i don't think this is like MotoGP where we kind of say tongue-in-cheek that it's an r&d thing well that's no it's a marketing thing i'm sure honda learned some interesting things from the MotoGP program last year is that going to fundamentally make a better Fireblade for us this coming uh, 2017 model year? I really doubt it. There'll be some trickle down stuff. There'll be some stuff we learn, but you know the R and D value is 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 definitely diminishing return the more and more that racing goes on. Whereas the TT, there's there's tremendous value. Every brand I talk to uh, every year at the end of the race, they 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 love how much they learn and they're encountering things that they they wouldn't have encountered otherwise or or wouldn't have taken them as uh, quickly to 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 understand or or um, have to come up with solutions for, but it's tough, you know, it's tough, and 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 I, I see it both ways, and um, and there's a part of me that thinks that the 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 Isle of Man only continues to do the electric race to to kind of stick it to Azer and and what the TTXGP people were doing because that was, and I think we have to frame that in that context, that was a horrible marriage and a horrible split up and a horrible relationship and there's a lot of bad blood and there's a lot of politics involved and there's a lot of money involved and the FIMs involved in that as well. And, and, 
you know, we need to be wary of that when, when understanding the TT0 as a whole. I think like one thing that, that I always find interesting is like we, we have always been told that racing is what drives development. And you mentioned it there, JB, that you spend your R&D budget, whatever it is, you know, cost capping and racing is a bit of a joke because you're going to, if you can raise a hundred million, you'll spend a hundred million. If you can raise 10 million, you'll spend that. If you can raise a hundred grand, that's what you'll spend. And I think if you look at some of the biggest advances that we've seen as a direct result of racing, all you have to do is drive your road car because how many diesels were actually pleasant to drive 20 years ago? Most of them were a bag of shit. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have felt like it was really an engine you would enjoy driving. Whereas if you look at a modern day diesel after, you know, 10 years of Audi having come in with their diesels at Le Mans and things like that. It, it is where you see that development actually apply to the road. How much development, as you said, JB, are we actually going to get from a MotoGP bike to a road bike, given that we've already had four strokes for such a long period of time? We've already had super bikes running four strokes up to that as well. It is a case of electronics is where we've seen the development on bikes and maybe this is the kind of series that will help drive that electric bike technology as well. I definitely think there is the potential from it because Tony, when you were talking to the guys from Victory, they said that the potential top speed from their bike is about 180 mile an hour, which shows just how quick a bike that is. And obviously for the TT course being so long, nearly 40 miles, you've got to have enough batteries. That's what makes the bike weigh so much, as you said, Jensen. And it is a case of just trying to be able to find that balancing point. But Tony, I know you were really surprised whenever you talked to the Victory Boys just about the potential of their bike. It was just interesting to ask them. Um, uh, and it was also interesting that he didn't, he said that they hadn't, actually done a test just to see how fast the, the bike would go he said that 185 miles an hour was uh, an estimate uh, at the bottom end of the of the estimate and he you know he thought with a bit of work they could maybe get the bike to do 200 miles an hour so it goes to show that the just how fast these these things are but i don't the technology is not there yet for them to do super bike speeds around the tt we're, we're at lightweight lightweight speeds at the TT and that's amazing in in the short period of time but uh, we go back to how it was what we were talking about before and the, the cost of it uh, and the amount of bikes that are competitive on the grid is is not enough for for me to to still call it a race yeah that's fair play let's, let's shift gears to to another to another topic i think we're going to disagree with tony um <laughs> and, and about technology because because I, I just enjoy just di- disagreeing with you jensen that's it's one of my hobbies to be quite honest, Jensen, I do feel that we have no option but to disagree with you sitting as you're sitting there drinking a Diet Coke instead of a Mountain Dew. How can I respect a Mountain Dew <laughs> fanatic such as yourself, JB, when you're sitting there drinking a can of Coke? Yeah, I'm, I'm a sellout. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm a total sellout. You want to have a row about live TV, I'm imagining. <laughs> no, I think, I think there's a reasonable conversation to be made about um the coverage of the tt i know we, we we hit on it a little bit earlier in the show but you know for me it's always interesting to to have fans you know they ask me on twitter and facebook how can i watch the show live where's the live stream where's the live stream how do i watch the show and and until recently i had to be like well you need to kind of basically hack your way in to watch the itv4 feed because that's free to to uh, british viewers um but now we have velocity, which is which is great. But it's the same North One feed. But there is a part of me that that longs to see 
the coverage, the live coverage for the, the TT races to be more than a live timing screen that has like what, five timing sections and Minx Radio TT, which do a fantastic job, I should say, you know, full, full credit to the Minx Radio TT boys. But, you know, I feel like I'm stuck in a way in the 1950s or the 1940s. I mean, one of the things I like about the TT is that it's kind of have this antiquated charm. You know, and you have the Boy Scouts, you know, running with the ticker tape and some guy painting on I a was, big chalkboard. I was one of those Boy Scouts many moons ago, I'll, I'll have you know. Back when you could still run, yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> but it's true, I, I was running backwards and forwards behind that screen. But, but the, you know, there is there is a part of me that's like, hey guys, it's 2016, let's get with the modern times. Uh, I know you gentlemen disagree with that, so so why don't you tell me your thoughts and, and try and convince me. Well, I think for me, the... The, and, and you're right in saying some things, JP, there. The Radio TT does a great job to keep everyone informed, but they do a terrible job of playing music as well. Tony, we <laughs> only heard Boys of Summer because you actually played it for us. But I think when you look at the TT, I would like to see more timing sectors because I think in this day and age, I think people do expect to be up completely up to date. And it is quite unusual to have to wait five minutes for a timing loop, another six minutes, another, you know, and you want to find out where everyone is. Obviously, it's a long track. I don't want to have a timing loop every minute, but I, I would like to have an extra couple of loops just to be able to keep everyone informed. Tony, what do you think? Um, one thing I can think of straight away as to perhaps why we don't see maybe a live GPS-style timing loop with with uh, coverage of exactly where a rider is, because if that suddenly stopped, there would be uh, questions being asked as to what's happened, why has that person stopped? It might be a mechanical, it might be another reason, and that obviously not just for from a spectator point of view, for the families. And it goes back to what we talked about before in the, with the danger element of the TT. And I think that would be a dangerous thing to, to consider for 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 suddenly a, a, a GPS signal goes as, as to, or just stops in one place. Yeah, and I don't think you need to have a GPS with a live map of the track showing where each bike is. Because for one thing, there's only 10 seconds separating the bikes. And uh, on a map that size, you wouldn't see too many bikes anyway. From just from a practical perspective, I think it wouldn't make a pleasing user interface. But I think that just having an extra couple of timing loops through it, because I think there's five timing loops and uh, a speed trap. I think officially there are we we see that amount of timing loops, but I think unofficially the courses broke down into a lot more sectors, and the powers that be see a great deal more of, of what is going on than 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 is fed through Radio TT and uh, the IOM TT website. Well, that's no different than than MotoGP though. When you get down to it, because Dorna has access to the closed circuit cameras and and obviously has a lot more data at their fingertips when when they're looking at the GP boys including GPS information. So that doesn't surprise me in the least. My, my biggest concern and my biggest gripe is, is what, what's forward facing to to the fans. Uh, you know, I think Stephen, you're absolutely right. More timing loops for, for the fans to, to understand what's going on the course would be extremely helpful. I don't think the issue with, you know, and the, the unfortunate circumstance, if there's a crash or if there's a mechanical, I don't think that's a reason not to have more detailed uh, coverage or, or live coverage. I think we already know how to handle that with, with other motorsport racing. We know how to handle that with MotoGP. Um, that's, that, that comes down to the producer in the, uh, the video booth um, making smart decisions and, and understanding. And, you know, even a five, 10 second delay on the live feed is, is all you really need to get around that issue. 
um, to be able to make smart decisions in the booth. So I feel like that's that's a non-issue in my world. Um, the bigger side of it, of course, I think is probably just technology, which I think is I think we're you know unlike TT Zero, I think we're at the point now where having live video. Uh, beamed from the the bikes to to around the TT courses is, is totally doable, especially with the speeds that we can get on a cellular network now. You know, if if the I don't want to imply that the Alman doesn't have a robust cellular network like an LTE network. I'm sure it, it, it's just as as good as as the real people in the world do. Um, How dare you! How <laughs> very dare you! Um, but 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 you know like but an but an LTE an LTE signal can easily carry a video feed. Um, it's not it's not a technical hurdle, and and there's certainly, I think, a, if the infrastructure is not there, I think that's an easy case to make to to put one in place that would not only benefit the TT itself but also the Manx population as a whole. Um, and then in the rest of it just comes down to money, and and that of course is always an issue and and uh, is always a barrier, but. Sometimes money is just money, and I think in the long term that could be money well spent. I I think there's more to it than just the, the cost involved. I don't think personally that the TT as a live television event has would have the same impact. Um, obviously, we look at the the coverage that is put together from North One and the the pro the programs that uh, they they get out really quickly at the end of the day are amazing they're fantastic we get cameras from different perspectives we get on boards we get pit cameras uh, and we we get to see bikes going through sections at what would appear to be at the same time uh, in terms of of a live event uh, you might find that you spend 17 minutes watching it from a helicopter uh, i don't know if you've ever sat and watched the northwest 200 coverage um, which is predominantly a helicopter with a with two or three cameras on the coast road section, and I feel as though they could do a great deal more with that. And for me personally, the TT, I just don't see it working uh, to the same extent as we have at the moment as a as a live event. It's certainly not. You can't compare it to the to coverage of MotoGP or World Superbikes because you've got all that that many bikes out on track in one go and and you, you know yourself Jensen you've been there and you've watched it and you, you'll see a bike go past and then if you're at a particular section you might have to wait a while for somebody else to come through and to put the amount of cameras around the circuit to 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 where uh, for every section would be a massive undertaking yeah I, I i don't disagree with what you said but i don't agree with it either it's I think I think you bring up a good point when you say MotoGP and World Superbike because I think that's the standard now, and I think and I worry a little bit too because you know we 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 already believe in this sport, we're already believers, we already are invested in it, we already obviously we we make our livelihoods out of it, so we're like we're full on. My concern always is is how do we bring new uh, viewers and new fans into the world of motorcycle racing, whether it be MotoGP, World Superbike, Moto America here in the USA, or the TT on the Isle of Man. Uh, how, how are you going to attract them and how are you going to attract younger fans? How are you going to make this the next generation or how are you going to engage the next generation in this sport? And and some of that requires looking at how those generations interact with media. And I think there is, you know, we, we talk a lot about millennials in the U.S. and it's it's an unfair conversation in some ways, but there's definitely generations of kids now that grew up with computers, that grew up with cell phones, that are growing up with social media from the go. And they interact in their world in a very different way than and say my parents did and, and and in a fairly different way than than I do. And I'm still a younger person myself, like you guys mentioned earlier. And so I just keep that in mind when when we're talking about this this race and how it, you know, how to sustain it going forward. I think I think at some point it has to 
it has to give in in some dimension. And and I agree, it is going to be a big technical hurdle, uh, especially with 37 miles of course, almost 38 miles of course. But at some level too, that that can no longer be the excuse. Well, I think for me, I, I look at things from a different perspective this year maybe than I did in the past just because I'm able to see what goes into a TV production. And obviously, whenever I was just working as a journalist and a photographer in, in GP, it was it was a different perspective because you do just expect things to be the cutting edge view that we see once we're looking at the end product. And I think so much of it comes down to cost, so much of it comes down to the number of people that you can actually have on site. And to be honest, for me, looking at the TT from a helicopter or looking at it from on boards with only a handful of uh, remote cameras, it just, I don't think, I don't think it would be something that would draw fans into it. Because the thing that makes the TT special, the thing that makes the, the production that we see from North One unique is that on the ground camera that just scares the crap out of you whenever you see this bike coming around a corner and things like that. I don't want to see it where we've got, you know, one lone camera down at the end of a straight or we've got things like the the camera at uh, Ramsey Herpin and we're doing everything from on boards or from helicopters. I want to see it where it's something terrific. And I think maybe it is a case of North One have a slightly longer show maybe instead of having it as a 45 minute show it, maybe they have an hour and a half or something like that and you get more available for people but I think right now it's very tough to actually be able to make it as a live event because even things like as Tony said the Northwest that uses a lot of helicopters and that's only over a nine mile course in that region yeah yeah but look at the stature not of the Northwest versus the TT and I don't mean that as a slight to, to the the people that produce and promote the the Northwest 200, but it's a different race. It's a different race on an international scale. The Northwest is known very well uh, in the UK and Ireland, um, but outside that, I mean, I don't cover it on asphalt and rubber, and there's a reason for it. American fans just, you know, there's only a handful of them that are into Irish road racing like that. Uh, but the TT, the TT has that stature, and, that, and I think that's my point: is is if you want the TT to be more than just a race at the Isle of Man. And have it to be a truly world-class, internationally known event. I think it needs to take that next step because I, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I love what North One does. I love watching the the ITV4 television programming. But I think that's very much uh, a programming format that is set up for locals. You know, like when, when I describe my TT experience to to my friends and fans, um, you know, it. it you know, I talk about the homestay. It's like, okay, so you're doing the homestay. You're living kind of like in a bed and breakfast environment. You go out to the TT course. You pretty much get to sit at one corner for the entire day. If you're lucky, maybe two or three, you can walk around the course. But the road's closed. You kind of get stuck where you are. And especially if you're like me that doesn't know all the secret little back roads, you're, you're stuck. And so you spend your like eight hours that day there with the people at that turn and you have a good time and, you know, you have your merriment and then you come back to where you're having your homestay and you have dinner and you trade stories around the dinner table about, well, I was here at Ramsey and this is what I saw. Well, I was up on the, the mountain mile at the bungalow and I saw this and I was down at Solby and, you know, you trade your stories and then 10 o'clock rolls around, ITV4 comes on and you watch, you watch it all put back together on television and that, that makes for a great day's experience. Because like that 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 forty five minute show kind of summarizes and, and encapsulates everything else that you've experienced through the day, every every story you've heard, everything you've witnessed, and and it ties it all together for you, and that's fantastic. But that doesn't do anything for someone, say you know, 
out here in the U.S. that's not getting that experience, and it's just it's like just watching the highlight reel, and it's great and it's good, but uh, it leaves me wanting more, and I think and I think other fans are going to want a lot more. I think that is the case, Jensen, and and I can understand why people would want to have live coverage, people would want to have more. But is there actually the value in having that for road racing? Whenever you look at it, that the to win the senior TT, the prize money is about fifteen thousand. To win the super sport, I think it's about ten. To win the stockers, it's you know seven or eight thousand. If that's what the winners are getting, is there the budget in place to be able to have live coverage? At at the moment, there there wouldn't be the the. One thing we've we've seen in in the last few years is the Isle of Man government. Disting it, we're not disting it. Disting. Oh, I'll try and put my teeth back in, or maybe pick a different word. Uh, is is trying to um, take some of the financial pressure off itself and the and the taxpayers at the Isle of Man in terms of paying for the event uh, and have the event pay for itself. Uh, and at the moment, even regardless of technology, that there is just the the cost involved in putting the TV the TT on live would be astronomical. Uh, and I also would would argue that people who look at the end the, the highlight package now and see what they see there from that would not get the same value out of watching it live uh, from a handful of cameras around the course and a, and a helicopter. Even even if it was thirty cameras around the course and a helicopter, they see the highlight that package now and it's it's spectacular, it's amazing, and I don't feel you would get that exact same feel from a, a live broadcast unless you put an exorbitant amount of money into it, and that's just simply not going to happen. One one sport that I actually and gents we've talked about it before, one sport that I really love is American football, and. It's the production value of a lot of the features that like NFL films make, you know, the ones that are America's game or, you know, looking back at a season or looking back at a career. And and they do a great job of being able to capture why people love that sport without having, you know, three and a half hours of a match. And I think if you were to look at the TT, would you actually have three and a half hours of interesting television if it was the TT being covered. I don't think you would because I think most people are interested in what happens at the front as opposed to what happens in the midfield or at the back. And that's not a slide on any of the riders that are at the back. They're still putting everything on the line, but people want to see the fight at the front. And whenever it's not actually people on track battling, is it still interesting as a live TV spectacle? Because if you look at this year's superbike races, Dunlop managed to catch himself up to the guys in front. He was racing in the same pack as Hutchie and as McGuinness, but he's a minute ahead of McGuinness and he's 20 seconds ahead of Hutchie. So are they actually racing? And does that translate to good live TV? Yeah, there's there's a couple things there that are, that are, I think are really interesting that you touched on. That. And the first one being NFL Films. NFL Films is amazing storytelling. And I think the TT does set itself up for, for something like that. And, and the proof of that, I think we can look to just this year. Uh, Northwind did a fantastic show on Ian Hutchinson uh, and talking about the recovery that he's had to go through and just that journey from from his injuries to, to getting back to where he is now. Uh, the Molyneux show was very interesting for me as someone who's not terribly interested in sidecars, but knowing who he is and you know probably someone that doesn't really get as much uh, coverage and praise as he should for 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 the results that he's getting in and an extremely interesting personality um, and take that take that word to mean however you want but 
um, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of really you know intriguing people in in the paddock you know and we you know, we already talked about Guy Martin he's probably one of the most intriguing but you know John McGinnis is a good story Connor Cummins is a fantastic story especially after his crash um, you know pick pick a writer I mean these are all these are all great stories of of kind of like average kind of guys doing something extraordinary and and I think people eat that up with with fork and spoon. To get to the the racing coverage, I think I think one of the things we have to change in our mindset, and this is because most of us spend more of our time in the GP paddock than we do uh, at the Isle of Man, you know, except for you, Tony, of course. Um, but we, we we're approaching this from very much a closed circuit uh, production. You know, this isn't this isn't us watching Rossi and Lorenzo battle out turn for turn. You're right, uh, Steve, when you say you know, like even when Dunlop is. You know, right behind Hutchinson and McGinnis on the course, he's still ten seconds, twenty seconds ahead of both of them. So is that a race? No, of course it's not. And that's and that's the thing. Like we're not showing the race in that in that regard. We're not going to be showing bar to bar action, uh, as our colleague David Emmett would would point out. It's a fucking time trial. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a different. David Emmett's not a good man to bring up in a conversation <laughs> like this. Though. The man doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> no, that's yeah, he doesn't have a fucking clue. But but you know he is right in the sense that this isn't bar to bar action like it is at the Northwest, which is which is a different animal, or the Ulster, or sorry, any of those other uh, road races, even even the Macau Grand Prix. Uh, it is a fucking time trial, and that is a different animal. But and I think we hit on this earlier in the show, the spectacle that the TT brings. I, I, you know, when I when I envision live live coverage in my head, like yeah, you do get some of those helicopter shots to kind of show them on the course. You know, and, and Tony, like you you of course know like the spots on the course where there is just amazing moments where you have the guys coming around a turn banked over both wheels on the ground the, the spots where the bikes get launched you know into the air where you hit massive wheelies or you get massive head shakes the braking zones uh, i i think i think a smart production team could easily string together you know a dozen or so intriguing spots like that to to put on a live show uh and and stitch it together with the, the helicopter shots and the onboard shots and 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 the analysis the live analysis i think would be really interesting um so i think there's something there we just have to approach it from a different perspective of this is like all the other motorcycle racing we see on tv i, I don't think that's a a formula that carries all the way over um, i think we have to play to the tt strengths and the tt strengths of the course itself and the people the personalities that are involved the fact that these are like a lot of these guys are just average guys you know the eight nine year, months out of the year they're they're doing something completely completely different what's the joke um i think it's cameron donald he's the fastest plumber in the world you know it's like the, the all these guys have these great these great little side stories and, and the tt is not their main their main uh form of income i think you know maybe all but for the top five guys maybe even fewer this is a this is a part-time gig yeah no no absolutely but i think it's probably something that we could discuss at great length um and uh, we'd probably never we'd probably never agree between ourselves as to whether whether the viability of a of a live tt broadcast uh is there or not but um i suppose we we are at that point in the in in the show where we need to think about moving on um because i'm i'm looking at time and i'm seeing that steve's ferry is getting closer and closer and i personally cannot wait to see the back of him as i've had him stuck here for two weeks and i'll be looking forward to to uh seeing him gone i'll be there waving him off as he goes in in an hour or so with two fingers high in the air <laughs> all i heard there all i heard there was steve ferry back of him two fingers 
That's all I heard in that entire, well, you, you, in that you, entire you conversation. You hear what you want to hear, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah, no. Well, before we digress even further into a conversation about my back and two fingers, um, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll just finish off talking about this year's TT. Yeah, thank you for saving us, Steve. Cheers. Hey guys, Jensen here. Just one more time. Want to give a quick shout out to our followers on Twitter. We just cracked the uh, 1,000 follower mark and are pretty stoked about that. So thank you for following the show on Twitter. And that was the final time. Back to the show now. Welcome back to the show. And obviously we've we've talked about all the highs of TT 2016 and we've talked about how majestic the island is. We've talked about the excitement that we see here at the TT and we've talked about the incredible speeds that we saw this year where 134 miles an hour average laps were within touching distance. But unfortunately, we also got a, a, a stark reminder of the somber realities of the TT with four deaths for competitors during the races this year. And obviously... We never want to see anyone hurt or and definitely never want to see anyone die on the roads, but it is part of road racing and it is something that unfortunately, Tony, when you grow up around road racing, it is just something that you take as part and parcel almost of road racing. Yeah, it, it, it's always something that is difficult to talk about um, and you try not, you, it's, you can never be blasé about, about something like that, but um, it it is an unfortunate fact that um, people do sometimes lose their lives racing at the TT. And uh, having been uh, a fan of the TT for so long and having been brought up around the TT and, and having seen um, people have been killed at the TT, um, it, it is a difficult difficult part of it. And uh, I, I think something that you and I were talking about, Steve, because unfortunately the, the MotoGP paddock lost Louis Salom in, uh, in the day's just prior to the start of this year's event and there was talk of the event maybe being cancelled and uh, and it was something that you and I talked about and you, you do perhaps develop a slightly thicker skin uh, being a fan of road racing and it, like I say it is an extremely difficult thing to talk about and having seen the, the four people lose their lives this year is, is always extremely difficult. And the event, of course, will come under criticism from people who have just seen a, a news headline and will know very little about the people involved and the, the families and some of the stories you hear from, from the families themselves and people who have, who have lost somebody racing and the, the strength that they they show uh, in this at that level of adversity is, is sometimes is, is is unbelievable to see how they can how they conduct themselves afterwards and they are the last people that would want to see something like the TT be stopped. Um, so yeah, it, it's a difficult thing to talk about. Yeah, it is, and I think it's something that we've we've covered races where people have been hurt where people have died and i think even if you look back at the show that david did with pippel Aberdeen, she talked about you know that 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 feeling that you have whenever you're inside the garage and she's looking at eugene racing and and it's tough to to even accept that to a certain degree on a short on a short circuit whereas when you come to the roads it has to be incredibly difficult for partners husbands wives whoever it is that see 
you know that that person out there racing and i think it is something that we can underestimate just how difficult that is because we've watched it as fans we we watch it as you know that we're covering an event and things like that but i thought it was interesting just to see the differences between the two paddocks and how each paddock reacts to accidents like that because if you look at uh, the moto gp paddock after or uh, louis salam's death it was a case of you know change the track there was talk of cancelling the race there was you know the minute silence there was lots of things for salam on the on the saturday and sunday in barcelona whereas here it was a case of we've got to finish the race we've got to move on to the next one and and that's not a callousness of road racing that's just understanding that everyone knows whenever they get onto the bike that they may not come back and it's the fact that they're able to accept that they're able to go out there and go flat out all the way down through to Bray Hill that separates the road racers, I think, from the short circuit riders. And it, it is what makes this one of the most incredible events in the world. And I know at home when anyone has an accident on the, the national on the national roads, it is a case that uh, constantly you'll get RTE or you'll get you know the different national broadcasters talking about the fact that we need to stop road racing that it's a, a needless death for a competitor but when you talk to the riders when you talk to different people in the paddock they understand that this is something that that rider has totally gone into with the knowledge that if they have an accident that this could happen to them yeah yeah i think i think there's some some really good points you bring up there steve and for me the f it, it was weird going to the TT for the first time, and, and it was even weird going to the TT the second time, knowing statistically speaking, if you look at the history of the Alaman TT, that two competitors die each year. You know, it's like watching a snuff film in a way, where I, I'm going to cover this event that I know in all likelihood I'm going to report on someone losing their life, and for a journalist, it's a very it's a very strange thing. I'm not. You know, I don't, I don't cover war zones. I don't cover those kind of things. I just cover motorbikes. And obviously people die on motorcycles quite often, but never like this before. And I think that's, I think that touches on uh, the difference between coming from like the MotoGP paddock versus the TT paddock. And I think you're absolutely right in that regard. The difference though, I think is, I think um, in some ways too, like in MotoGP, why, why do, why do MotoGP racers become MotoGP racers? And, and some of that is the thrill. Absolutely. And some of that is uh, the, the, the essence of what riding a, a motorcycle at speed uh, brings to the rider. But I think also a lot of it is the fame. Uh, when you look at the personalities involved with some of the riders that just feed on the fame that they've, they're creating for themselves. And I think that's a huge lure as well. And that I think is absent from the TT or where most of the TT competitors, I mean, man, the vast majority of the, of the TT competitors aren't going to be famous, not even close. And even, even the top 10 guys, even the top 20 guys, you know, like they have some fame in, in TT circles, but not real fame, not, not in the fame if they were walking around in London, that someone's going to stop them and be like, Oh, I know who you are. Please can I have your autograph? Guy Martin is probably the exception. John McGinnis is probably an exception, but like, I don't even know. I think Michael Dunlop would probably around London just fine and no one would give, would give him a thought. Same with Ian Hutchinson, you know, and these are guys that dominated this, the racing this year. And cause I, I think the reason they line up is because of the challenge that, that the TT is and what the mountain course is. It was really funny. I, I just watched the movie Everest last night. Um, mountaineering is kind of something that's near and dear to my heart. 
And, and it's that same idea of, well, why do you climb Everest? You know, that's, that's the dial, the age old question, you know, asked Sir Edmund Hillary and, and his response is great. Cause it's there. And I feel it's the same, it's the same with the TT. It's like, well, why are these guys riding the TT course? It's cause, cause it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge that calls to them. It's, it's, they have this acceptance of, of life as being finite and they're going to make the most of it. And that, you know, sometimes that, that's a price that's very high, but, but the, the alternative is probably living a life that they wouldn't consider worth living. And that's a hard thing to wrap our heads around sometimes. I don't think, I don't think we deal well with death in Western culture. And um, I'd say the TT racers probably deal with it the best. Yeah, I think um, the, but the, the people who come and, and, and race the, the TT are people who obviously live their life on the edge and it, it, it's something that gives them a thrill and it's something that they enjoy and um people who don't follow motorcycle racing or or will maybe not understand it um people who do follow motorcycle racing but not road racing may not understand it and it's 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 obviously there to be targeted and there for for people uh, to to sometimes hit out at it when something happens but i think until you are involved in it and you can see what it means to the people that are doing it um you're not in a proper in a true position to 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 comment on it obviously people can have an opinion but until you've seen it for yourself and seen uh, what it means to the to, to the people who compete in it it's uh, it it takes on a different perspective then absolutely absolutely if it wasn't if it wasn't dangerous and it wasn't challenging if we sanitized it to the level that i think many of the detractors would like it to be sanitized to i don't think we'd have very many people on the grid i think that's that that i think is what speaks the volumes yeah and we we, we live in in such a, a sanitized world and a controlled world and uh, it, it is nice to to see that there are still things that people can do that and it just doesn't make any sense why somebody would want to do this, whether it is racing at the TT, whether it is climbing Everest, whether it is diving uh, with sharks or, or any of these types of dangerous things. Um, I'm just thankful that there are people who push the envelope and, and want to do these things. And unfortunately, sometimes they do pay the ultimate price. Yeah. I think with that, we'll just, uh, we'll just say that Paul Shoesmith, Dwight Bear, Ian Bell... Andy Sore, they're definitely all in our thoughts and, and all the other racers that have gone before them. You know, thanks for putting on the show.